Hello. We're just trying to sort the Wi-Fi. Very sorry about this. Um, Gerard had me in for a nasty surprise today. He told me I was going to be on a panel. He didn't tell me I was giving a talk. <laughs> so that was how he lured me down to Belfast. He knew he'd never got me down any other way. So apologies. You just didn't read what I said. <laughs> it was so, in Donegal dialect. <laughs> yeah, it was in some Belfast, you know, north-south translation interpretation issues. So I don't have any slides, but what I have is a story, and I'll share that with you. Um, I'm Mrs. Glass half full and he's Mr. Glass half empty, so I'm hoping I'll send you off on a more positive note because I just think Jared's miserable and he gave you all the, all the unhappy stories um, and the bring a bit of energy back. I'm only joking. Um, listen, my story starts as in August 2012 and I'm sitting in a car parked in Lisburn just outside Belfast talking to a source. I don't know why the source wanted to sit in a parked car, but I think a lot of them watched all the President's Men and they think this is really cool. So they've set up these situations just to add a bit of, you know, gravitas. Which I'm fine with it. Sounds great when you write the actual story. Um, so as you can imagine, this starts with a story. I'm sitting in this car and this source, who's about 30 years older than me, is telling me about a politician called Robert Bradford, who I've never heard of. And Robert Bradford was a unionist MP for South Belfast and he was murdered by the IRA in November 1981. And my source is telling me, he said, you need to look into this. And I said, well, why? And he said, because, he said, Bradford was asking questions about something before he died. And there's questions around the murder. Now, as you can imagine, my spidey senses were tingling at this. And I was like, okay, that's something really interesting. I thought, right, I'll work on this, I'll check it out. I'll work on it for a few weeks. And in four weeks' time, I'll publish a story. Now, Whenever I say things like that, like I'll work on this for a few weeks and then I'll publish it and whatever, it's kind of like when you tell your other half, I'm only going out for one drink with my friends, and then you turn up three days later and the guardie find you. you know, it never quite goes, it's never one drink. For me, it's never a month, it's never two months, it's usually much longer, from six months to two years. Um, it ended up being two years. So 18 months after I started the story, I was absolutely broke. I'd quit my full-time job to go part-time to give me more time to work on the story. I'd become completely obsessed by it because I was convinced from the things I'd found that what my source said was absolutely true. You know, there'd always been this narrative around Bradford's murder that he was killed by the IRA and it was a sectarian assassination. And the more I dug in, more I found out that wasn't quite, it wasn't adding up. You know, we had, one thing we had in the North is we always talked about collusion, about how nationalists, um, people like my family were colluded against by the state. And yet it was really strange. It was the first case where I was looking at the story and thinking, but it happened to unionists too. And I was really convinced that people in government had had, there was some crossover in Bradford's murder. I just, there was just different things were coming up and it just, too many things didn't make sense and I needed to keep digging. So I, as I said, I was broke and I needed money to go to England and the States to trace people. Who, um, who had fled Northern Ireland during the Troubles. So the first thing that came up was a thing called the Arthur Guinness Fund. And the Arthur Guinness Fund was, we'll give you 50 grand and for, to go do your project over three years. And, but the catch was that you had to create your project and you had to get votes. And this is the first time that I ever went to ask my Twitter fans for help. So I created my project and then I started tweeting it out and said, people, can you vote for me? Because I need to get, he had to get enough votes to get into the top 10 of the final. And Twitter went insane. For an entire month, it was just crazy. People really wanted this to work. 
Now, throughout this process, for the last few years, I've just tweeted stories and blogged about them and talked about them as I'm digging them up. And people, other journalists, normally sort of more established traditional journalists who are better than usual, always think that was a really bad idea. What if people steal your ideas? But for me, I really felt that we had to show people how the sausage was made. And what I didn't realise was that in doing that, I was creating this entire narrative. Like, it kind of grew beyond me. Because when I, all I was doing, as far as I was concerned, was tweeting, I'm going to interview someone today to talk about X. Um, this is what I think about this story. I could be wrong, but I'm chasing this lead, and it looks like this. For pe- for a lot of people, it, I was become the kind to represent this underdog, young underdog reporter, and they wanted to see me succeed. And I didn't realise that until the Guinness, uh, the, when I needed votes, and people went and see, and people were emailing their family, their friends. I seen people posting in LinkedIn groups. It was like having all these different election agents, and they were all trying to help me get into the final. And it was just absolutely incredible. Don't worry about it. I can go without. Okay. <laughs> um, More worried for myself. <laughs> it was just absolutely incredible. And I mean, the, the real moment came when the final night, and it was kind of down to midnight. We didn't know if I was going to make to the top, t- the top ten. The, you know, and people were setting up, waiting until midnight to see if I got into the final. People I didn't know, people I'd never met, people from all over the world, and like Kuala Lumpur, locally Dublin. I thought, wow, this is incredible. It's like I had this whole fan base that I didn't know I had, all these people who really wanted to see me succeed. Long story short, Guinness didn't give me the money. Absolutely gutted. So I thought, right, I need to try one more thing. And around this time, there was a site just launched called Beacon Reader. And Beacon Reader was basically Kickstarter for journalists, except it allowed people to pledge one-off subscriptions to whatever you're doing and or to sign up for a monthly subscription for, say, $5 a month. So I thought, right, okay, I'm going to do a crowdfunder. Right, it's the first time I'm really going to ask people for money. And I told them, here's what it is. I'll write the book. I'll publish it as it's being written. I'll publish it a chapter a month. You'll get it every month, the chapter, and you'll see it before anyone else. And all I'm asking you for is minimum $5 a month. And again, Twitter went crazy. It was insane. I had people from all over the world giving me $100, $200. I, I just, I, I really couldn't believe it. And four days before my 24th birthday, we cleared the line and we got, got the money. It was, and it was absolutely incredible. I think we raised about $6,000, 200 people all signed up. It was amazing. And since then, we've raised over 10 grand in total from different subscribers, subscribers who pledged monthly. And the last chapter is being published this week, which has been, I have to say, it's been a really crazy ride. And I just, um, I feel exhausted. It's the come down from it all, but it's been abs- it's been absolutely amazing. I feel like I've went on this journey with people, all these people that I don't know, and just help me tell the story. So, I guess for me, a few tips about things that I could have done better, things that I could you know I wish I'd done. Um, you know, hope George doesn't mind me saying this. I think the difference between my and George's campaign was that this. People lived through this story for quite a while before I actually went and asked them for money. And they lived with me for quite a while in the sense that they knew that I was digging stuff up, that I was always looking for answers, that I always chasing these really difficult stories. So they were already used wanting to help by the time the idea of the story, everything, it was already sort of in their heads by the time I got to them and asked them for money. I think the other thing that really worked in my favour was that when we did the pitch video, I framed it all around what Okay, so what was Robert Bradford working on? If you back me, I can find out. 
So it was a way of luring them in. It's like this is that there's this one outcome, just this one outcome. It's all I want to know is what he, what was he working on, what was he trying to, what was he digging up before he died, and we'll find out together. And the third said about this idea of a little bit fuzzy. For me, there was just one clear deliverable. People are always going to remember one thing when you pitch them something. If you're trying to make them believe in the idea, you just got to focus on that one thing. For me, the other thing I found was that. As journalists, you know, we believe, obviously we believe in this, and we believe all these really, I certainly am very idealistic, and I believe in all these sort of noble ideas about journalism, about how we're public servants, and we're meant to expose the truth, and corruption, and all those things. People, or people who are journalists don't think like that. We tend to think people should back us because we're, you know, we're doing a really noble service, and all they're thinking is, is this going to entertain me? If I click on this link, what is it adding to my life? Should I do this or should I watch Netflix? So you've got to, I think what we need to think of how the average consumer thinks, and we're not very good at that. So one thing I tried to do with, as I wrote the book, was that I created, instead of it being like a hard news story, I just created like a, it was narrative non-fiction. Now I created it like a novel, in the sense that everything I was writing was true, but I was just writing it in a different style, the way you might write a long form article. And that was a way of trying to keep people engaged and you know keep them interested. And I found it really worked because I have friends who people people I knew who weren't political or people I didn't know who weren't political in any sense who were coming to me and saying, "Oh my God, I really love the story. I can't get enough of it. I can't come with the next instalment." I had a girl in South Africa who had no clue about Northern Ireland come to me and say, "This is incredible. I'm really loving this story." Because I switched from the hard news down to the narrative nonfiction, it transcended sort of borders. So even if you were in South Africa and you had no clue who the Ulster Unionist Party was and you had no, didn't know what MP stood for or whatever it was, suddenly you were sucked into this story because it just focused on things that we can all relate to, you know, grief, mystery, intrigue, universal emotions. We as journalists, I think we really need to start thinking like musicians. And that we need, you know, musicians are constantly plugging their work, and it takes years to build yourselves up. For me, that's what journalism is. It's like being an actor at the moment, you know. That you, some of us, I, I mean, this was my first. I, you know, I didn't, I did so much work experience. I think I worked for about five years for free while working part-time jobs when I started out in journalism, which I don't think you should, I should have had to do because I was a working-class kid and I really couldn't afford it. And I know many other working-class kids who haven't been able to get into journalism as a result. But it is like acting in that respect. You know, this was my first steady paying gig, my first steady reporting gig, you know, and that was after nine years of slogging. So I think we need to think, we need to switch our mindset about how we think about journalism, because all of us think of it as a, you know, as a nine to five gig where we pick up a monthly paycheck. Actually, it's become, it's more, it's become more entrepreneurial. You know, you're constantly, mm -hmm. if you want to do journalism, you're going to be constantly hustling for work. You're going to be constantly hustling to try and get people to back your projects. So you need to build up a fan base. The way that a musician does tours to get people to buy his music or actually makes records to get people to buy tickets for his live shows. We need to think more about journalism in that respect. So, for example, I probably won't make a lot of money by, you know, appearing on BBC. But if that sells books, you know, sells a copy of the book, that's great. And I think the final thing that I would final thing I would add really is that I 
think we need to be ready to embrace new things in journalism and to keep trying. You know, one thing, Jerry, I hope, again, you don't mind me saying this, but, you know, one thing he was saying was, you know, there's not a market for it, etc., etc., etc. The internet is a borderless place, you know. I think if, if you really define a concept that well and you pitch it well, people will be attracted from all over. I think Goose was a great idea. It was absolutely fantastic idea. I think if George had said we're going to do these three stories and if, you know pitched it that way, that people would have jumped on it. I think his market would have actually stretched outside <coughs> Ireland because I think he would have had a you know a big expat market slash diaspora who would have been very interested in it. But the one I think the one word that we hear, the words that I hear a lot in journalism today are I can't, you know it's impossible, it won't, no one pays for news. It's not actually true. We just need to we need to shift how we think about these things. You know, as I said, think more like musicians <coughs> and actors. And when we're creating a story, you know, I go after a story because I think it's important. But my reader reads the story because it's entertaining, and I have to understand that that the motivations are too different, and that, so we have to bridge that gap somehow. I hope if there's any questions, obviously I'd be happy to answer them. Hope that was informative enough. Thank you very much.